Pain Information Network. It's a great day. We're outside, and I got two special people to talk to. I had a great pleasure of talking at the Georgia Society of Interventional Pain Physicians meeting in Georgia, and uh, it's a really cool place, Lake Oconee. I'm not a golfer I'd like to be, but uh, it's kind of a golfer's heaven, and it's a great family place, too. So uh, what ends up happening at these meetings is busy, 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 everybody's busy, then bam, we're not busy. So the second uh, these two guests weren't busy, I, uh, of course, did my usual ambush, but uh, I think they had a good time. Uh, We've seen Richard before, Richard Epter. He's uh, in uh, Georgia as a uh, pain practitioner. He'll tell you a little bit about where he's at. He's a a top dog. And Ken Candido. Ken is uh, a uh, titan. Uh, He is a uh, director of a large program. He'll tell you a little bit about that. And uh, it's a lot of of horsepower uh, at this meeting. And we got to uh, interact, uh, talk uh, about stuff that's pretty fun and cutting edge. And uh, enjoyed listening to them. I always come away, I've learned a lot, and I hope they learned a little, and uh, all in all, it's just a fellowship. So, i tell you what, let's get to it. Coney, and uh, it's a beautiful day. It's a Saturday at the Georgia Society of Interventional Pain Physician meeting, and I have two very distinguished, well-known uh, national and international figures uh, in the practice of pain medicine and have a lot of good things to say. Um, I have Ken Candido and Richard Epter. Richard uh, is an alumni. He's coming back. Uh, Ken is his uh, first podcast, but uh, Ken, tell us about yourself. Yeah, I'm the chairman of the Department of Anesthesiology in Chicago, known as Advocate Illinois Masonic Medical Center. I'm also a clinical professor, both of surgery as well as anesthesiology at the University of Illinois. And I train residents and I teach fellows and I've got a wonderful program of dedicated individuals who want to learn pain management from me each and every day. Yeah, okay, Richard, tell us about yourself. Well, I'm Richard Epter, and I am the founder and CEO of the Augusta Pain Center in Augusta, Georgia, home of the Masters. Uh, I have an interventional pain practice. We've got a multidisciplinary facility with uh, aquatic therapy, physical therapy, a behavioral team, and a Joint Commission Certified Surgery Center. So you're a master. I don't know. I, I, I try. <laughs> All right, Rich, I'm going to start with you. Um, Richard, uh, you know, we uh, have known each other a long time. Uh, yes. And through American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians and other other places. But uh, I guess a key thing of what you do is you do the ASC, or outpatient experience, uh, from a surgery center. Uh, tell me about that. So we do. We've got, uh, you know, a clinic that uh, we will evaluate patients first, do the appropriate history and physical exam, uh, follow that up with records and uh, whatever studies are appropriate, 
And then when appropriate, we'll do interventional procedures in an outpatient uh, ambulatory surgery center. And aquatic therapy is what? Aquatic therapy is a beautiful pool that's heated to 96 degrees where we've got certified aquatic therapists who take patients who really have a lot of debilitation, who have difficulty just walking, being on land, so that we can uh, first get them moving and functional in an aquatic environment so they can basically graduate and then eventually get to physical therapy on land. Yeah, it's really cool. I got music in the background on this one, <laughs> but it's not so bad. But the thing about aquatic therapy is um, it's non-weight bearing, and it's for those that have a lot of trouble with um, regular land-based therapy, right? That is correct. So the uh, the advantage, obviously, is buoyancy and taking uh, gravity out of the equation. So patients who are extremely debilitated, even with standing up and uh, being able to ambulate, They've got an environment where they can start to get things moving. Uh, they can start with aquatic exercises and uh, just start start getting them going as they need to be more functional. And you're fully interventional, so um, you have uh, that experience for patients. So you're kind of soup to nuts, right? I would say that's pretty accurate, yes. All right, what do you like to do best? Oh, I like to do uh, things that help people the longest. Uh, You know, it all starts with appropriate diagnostics. So we do a lot of diagnostic interventions, you know, whether it's a selective root injection, figure out if it's a C6 root or if it's a sympathetic, you know, lumbar or stellate or hypogastric. It, It really is most important to identify the problem, what nerves are involved in any given patient's pain. Yeah, rule number one, you have to have a diagnosis. Yeah, okay, so in the meeting today, you talked about regenerative medicine, and you think it's of great value. Tell us anecdotally about your patient. Well, so, you know, we've been doing that for probably about four or five years now, and uh, I've learned from some of the best in the country. Um, We do joints, we do soft tissues, we do muscle tears, we do tendonitis, and we've seen some incredibly impressive results. You know, before I can really sell anything to anyone, I've got to be able to believe it myself first and see that we actually get good outcomes. And we've got a number of people, some of whom live with me, some of whom are relatives, and also some of my best friends who've had these things done with years of relief, literally years. All right, Ken, your turn. Yes, sir. Ken, you uh, you pretty much nailed it today with a couple of great talks. Uh, oh, thanks. Uh, you know, I guess what was really interesting in, in the first hour, um, well, talk a little bit about the first hour, some of the take-home points uh, from your first lecture. I really think that we have a, a duty to give the correct information, not fake news and not sensationalized news, but tell the American public really about the history of opioid misuse in America, which has a very storied and lengthy and actually very interesting history that dates back more than 150 years. And I know that there's been a huge emphasis on this. And I just really wanted to get the message out first and foremost that we are not dealing with a new or novel phenomenon. We're dealing with something that's been out there and probably either under-recognized or under-reported or undervalued for many, many years. But we, we've had an issue and make no mistake about it it's consumed millions of americans for more than a century and that was the beginning of what i was discussing but i segued from that into trying to provide a a a framework and a venue and a format for why patients who come to surgery should be managed using a multimodal analgesic protocol to the exclusion of opioids and what we have available to us in our armamentarium and what the literature support is for the respective choices we make. And so I, 
I wanted to talk about opioids, the history. I wanted to talk about misuse and abuse, about predisposed patients and what qualifies as somebody who has a high-risk patient, and then segue into how we manage acute pain, nociceptive pain, pain that follows the usual pattern of transduction, transmission, modulation, perception, what the tools are that we have in our tool shed to make patients respond more favorably and with less pain to the exclusion of opioids. That was my my two-pronged message, my two-pronged attack, if you will. All right, this is what... uh this is what I think our, our listeners can take home here. Uh, the opioid crisis didn't start yesterday. It didn't start five years ago or ten years ago. Um, the key thing about the opioid crisis is it started, what, over a century ago? Yes, sir, it? that's absolutely correct. We started in the Civil War when we had almost 700,000, depending on who you ascribe to as your information source, anywhere from a half a million to 700,000 American soldiers acutely addicted to morphine, so readily available, so cheap. And with the advent of a hollow needle, hollow syringe, these poor individuals were managing not just their physical pain, but their emotional pain and their spiritual pain and the pain of a nation torn apart. And we had about three quarters of a million drug addicts in America at that time, only in our soldier population, notwithstanding the civilian population. Uh, before mass media, media, take us down the timeline from 1850, just kind of like in a quick 30,000-foot uh, uh, view. So in the 30,000-foot view, we went from the Civil War to basically having the Bayer Company that makes Bayer aspirin actually make their fortune not with aspirin but with heroin. And heroin was, again, so easily and readily available, so dirt cheap that even up until 1906, the Sears Roebuck catalog would offer small quantities of cocaine and heroin and syringes for sale. You could walk into any pharmacy in the country and order this stuff over the counter without a physician's prescription because there was no labeling. Then in 1914, Representative Francis Burton Harrison from the great state of New York decried that we needed a a venue to try to capture revenue and tax individuals and product. And so we had the Harrison Act. And that pretty much changed a lot because then we wanted control over the manufacture, distribution, and consumption of these controlled substances. And a lot didn't happen until the 1980s. In the 1980s, we had a couple of articles regrettably published in the peer-reviewed literature, which basically stated that narcotics were entirely safe for use in patients who had pain. And the pharmaceutical industry took off and ran with this, and the rest is history. We had a big problem after those two papers, one in 1980 by Porter and Jicks, and one in 1986 by Kathleen Foley. Uh, and Russell Portnoy over there in New York City. And I'm sure that the authors rue the day that those papers were published, and in fact, I know that they do, but that pretty much stimulated our second wave of opioid crisis or epidemic. Yeah, uh, that was the uh, kind of the home run for us this morning. Is, uh, I, I think the comments you, you made uh, rang true. We had no mass media, and uh, so, yeah, we've had a crisis but we've had many other crises, um, and uh, it, it just seems that the opioid epidemic is hitting the papers now, whereas 10 years ago, we're under-treating. And you made some good comments about that. Thanks. Okay, Rich. All right, take us home now. Um, if you could give our listeners some advice about dealing with their pain, because uh, of your many years, and I, I'm saying this to a young man, young men of spirit um, what would you say would be some some pearls of wisdom 
You know, you gotta you gotta deal with this stuff every day. I got you for fifteen minutes in the exam room. Well, the wisdom is is first understanding that chronic disease, uh, excuse me, chronic pain is a disease and not a symptom. So we have so many patients that come to us from other physicians uh, or from other family members, and they expect that uh, they're coming to a place, they're going to get one shot, and they're going to be fixed forever. So I always tell them this. I say, you know, you go to your, you, you've got high blood pressure, you've got uh, coronary artery disease, you've got pulmonary disease. It's not one pill. You can't go to your, your primary care physician and say, uh, give me one pill today for my high blood pressure and it'll be cured. You have to be realistic about expectations. And expectations for chronic pain are that it's a chronic disease. You're going to get older. The disease process itself is going to get worse. But fortunately, you have doctors who are trained and have experience to be able to help manage that pain, sometimes alleviate it for incredibly long periods of time, which is, you know, even a couple of years, sometimes even five, ten or more years from the different types of things that we do as an interventional pain physician. We do procedures that can help people not just identify where their pain comes from, but also help it and manage it or alleviate it for even more than 10 years. So that's what I've seen. But people have to understand that chronic pain is not just going to go away. It will worsen, but there's help out there. And they've got to realize that you've got to find an appropriately trained person with the right experience who is a a physician who can help you, and they're out there. Yep. Ken, take us home with your second lecture. Well, so my second lecture was trying to avoid pitfalls in common clinical practice. And pitfalls, of course, are things that we all, the holes that we all dig for ourselves. And we all do this. And part of the process is because we have biases built into our training, our education, our background, who our mentors were, what we've seen, what we've read, and what we believe to be the truth. And I was trying to essentially point out that individuals who practice interventional pain management ought to be very coherent, conversant, and cognizant. The three C's, coherent, conversant, and cognizant about the peer-reviewed literature, they ought to ascribe to best practices models. Not necessarily cookbook medicine, but to understand that there are multiple ways to skin a cat, but try to find the best one for your patient that's the most economical, the safest, and provides the best outcome for your patients. And we talked about different scenarios related to injections about the spine, injections about the sympathetic part of the nervous system, and finally about... um, Boy, what was the third thing I thought? Neuromodulation. Thank you, Richard. I totally... I, I was the speaker and totally clammed up on that. So neuromodulation and how to avoid infectious complications. Let's not invite him back. And (laughs) you have to. I love it here. But the truth be told is that there are certain things that people ought to be doing. The use of chlorhexidine and alcohol, for example, is a no-brainer and has been shown head-to-head versus povidone iodine or betadine to be a remarkable agent in terms of reducing the possible contamination and bacterial overgrowth and infection associated with our interventional implantable devices. So I was trying to provide a framework based on literature, based upon what the best evidence is out there for a best practices model. And people will take some of it away with them. Hopefully those who do not do certain of those things, for example, use CT scanners to find the anatomy better or maybe use ultrasound. Maybe there'll be some message which will resonate home with the audience today and I was privileged to participate in that and to give that message out today. You did it well. Okay, Richard, uh, parting thoughts. What are you, you going to tell somebody when they want to know, um, you know, uh, a pearl for the day? Uh, take care of yourself, quit smoking, 
Every pound counts. What is it? Pearl for the day is uh, never give up on uh, being active. So that's, uh, I think, the biggest uh, fault people have. They come in and we do things, they get better, and then they forget that they need to continue those exercises for the rest of their life. And uh, don't stop working. Working keeps people young. I've got a 92-year-old guy who still runs a company. He's awesome. He looks like he's 60. And uh, it's about keeping active and keeping going. That's what keeps you looking young and, and acting young. All right, Ken. A pearl. A pearl and us up. Uh, go out and do things safely. Take care of your patients. Put your patients before your pocketbook. I think that people who practice altruistic medicine, who love their patients, and who recognize that there are multiple ways to, to provide care and treatment for them, first, do no harm. That's really primum non nocere, and I'm a believer of that. But also, make decisions wisely. Look towards the patient benefit. Become totally unselfish when you manage patients. You can't possibly go wrong. So that's my message. All right, guys. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of the day. Well, that was a fun one with Sir Richard of uh, Augusta and the Titan, uh, Candido. And I, I see on Facebook a lot that uh, they're traveling the world. And um, I think uh, Dr. Candido is just in um, Spain. And I think he's going to go to Dublin to the World Institute of Pain. And Richard is uh, just about everywhere. Uh, and he knows how to how to really enjoy life so life lessons there and we can learn from both of them and i do daily so anyway if you could rate uh, me on uh, itunes that'd really be great uh, i don't understand their algorithm but every time somebody rates me it pops up which is access for other people to find me so i really appreciate that and i'm gonna do a five-part series um i'm gonna nerd out a little i'm a big uh kind of lover of physics and i have a little bit of a physics background just a little 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 tiny bit but i enjoy reading it as it uh, relates to medicine because they interrelate uh a lot and uh so um anyway i appreciate you listening and come back say hi go to painphysician.com leave a little message if you want something uh, talked about and see you soon That's my visual in the background, just rolling around and shaking and just out of bath and has just made a mess of everything. So that would be Sophie.